begin with a word of prayer. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to our Bible study on Wednesday evening. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks that you have superintended the development of your church down through the centuries. We are so thankful for those Christians who have remained faithful despite whatever circumstances they faced in life. And we know that you have called people in many walks of life, many different circumstances, and many different situations. But there are things that are similar in the situations that people faced in the second century to what we face today. And we ask that you would help us to learn from their faithful example to be like them and to carry forward this faith that you have given to us. We thank you and we ask for your help and your strength in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at part two of the series on church history. We're looking, continue to look at the church fathers. Tonight we, we will be looking at the letter to Dionysus, and then later we will be looking at Justin Martyr. Notice that I said the letter to Dionysus. I didn't say who the letter is from. And as you will soon discover, there's a reason for that. So let's begin now with the letter to Dionysus. The writings of the New Testament era, as well as those from the period immediately following the works of the so-called apostolic fathers, the apostolic fathers were the, the church fathers who immediately followed the apostles. They are concerned primarily with establishing the faith and discipline of Christian communities. They are works that generally address those within the fold of Christianity. So the New Testament epistles are written to churches like Rome, Corinth, or they are written to individual Christians, Titus and Timothy. So they're, they're written primarily to believers. After AD 150, though, there is a noticeable shift in the orientation of Christian literature. There is now a significant stress on what we call apologetics, that is reasons for holding to the Christian faith, the attempt to answer the ridicule and objections of unbelievers, and the attack on alternative worldviews in the Greco-Roman world, exposing their inadequacies for belief. So as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, and more and more pagans learned about Christianity, it became necessary to engage with the culture and to explain Christianity. Because often those people who did hear about Christianity were misinformed either by lies or distortions from those who didn't like Christianity. So Christians needed to address this. They needed to engage with the culture and set the record straight. One of the most attractive of these second century apologies is the letter to Dionysus, a spirited and stirring defense of the truth of the Christian worldview. It has been described as the pearl of early Christian apologetics. It stems from the joyous faith of a man who stands amazed 
at the revelation of God's love in his son, and who was seeking to persuade a Greco-Roman pagan by the name of Dionysus to make a commitment to the Christian life. As to who wrote this marvelous Christian treatise, we do not know. From its elegant Greek, it can be observed that the author was a Christian of culture and mind with a classical training who was possessed of a considerable literary skill and style. Nor is the identity of Dionysus, the recipient, known. Though some have speculated he may have been one of the tutors of the philosopher emperor Marcus Aurelius. And beyond the fact that this masterful apologetic was written within the bounds of the Roman Empire, probably in the eastern portion of the empire, the exact geographical location of its author is also unknown. However, we do have some idea of its date. There is evidence within the text that would place it in the final quarter of the second century. In the first chapter of the treatise, the author notes that Dionysus is interested in learning about the Christian faith. He has three specific questions that he wants answered. I have noticed, most excellent Dionysus, the deep interest you have been showing in, the, in Christianity and the close and careful inquiries you have been making about it. You would like to know what God Christians believe in and what sort of worship they practice, which enables them to set so little store by this world and even to make light of death itself since they reject the deities revered by the Greeks, no less than they disclaim the superstitions professed by the Jews. You are curious too about the warm fraternal affection they all feel for one another. Also, you are puzzled as to why this new race of men, or at least this novel manner of life, has only come into our lives recently instead of much earlier. There, there's a hymn that uh, says, give me that old time religion, give me that old time religion. Well, at this point in the second century, Christianity was not viewed as an old time religion. It was viewed as a, a Johnny come lately on the religious scene. And that was a reason why many people rejected it because it was so new. The first question is basically an inquiry about who is the Christian God. It is rooted in the fact that the Greeks and Romans regularly accused the early Christians of being atheists since they refused to worship the Greek and Roman gods. The second question, why do Christians love each other the way they do, is especially noteworthy. Many pagans were struck by the way that the ancient church was a community of love, something very different from their own experience of social relationships. The final question has its basis in the Greek and Roman reverence for antiquity. What was true had to be ancient. If what was recent, it was suspect. If Christianity was true, why had the culture's ancients not known of it? The recent origin of Christianity thus posed a major stumbling block for acceptance of its truth claims. So the, 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 the pagans at that time were saying, well, if Christianity is so great, how come we're just now hearing about it? Why, ha why haven't we heard about it before? The first three sections of the letter after the opening chapter contain a vigorous attack on both Greco-Roman paganism and Judaism. 
The former is attacked or engages in the folly of worshiping the products of human imagination and technology. The latter, the author admits, worships the true God, but with a wrong understanding. For the Jews think God stands in need of their sacrifices. The frontal attack made upon Greco-Roman paganism is particularly instructive about the way in which the second century church went about defending its faith in a pluralistic culture. A good defense of the Christian faith not only displays the problems with rival worldviews, but also sets forth how Christians view the world. Thus, after the author of the second century apology has differentiated Christian worship from that of Judaism and discussed the ways in which the Christian lifestyle is identical to and yet radically different from that of their pagan neighbors, he turns to answer Dionysus' first question, who is the God in whom Christians trust. The writer begins by indicating that the Christian concept of God is not the product of human thought or philosophy. He mentions this fact in chapter five. The doctrine they profess is not the invention of busy human minds and brains, nor are they like some adherents of this or that school of human thought. In chapter seven, he gives a much fuller statement. As I said before, it is not an earthly discovery. It is not an earthly discovery that has been entrusted to them. The thing they guard so jealously is no product of mortal thinking. And what has been committed to them is the stewardship of no human mysteries. The Almighty Himself, the creator of the universe, the God whom no eye can discern, has sent down his very own truth from heaven, his own holy and incomprehensible word to plant it among men ground it in their hearts. Here the author affirms unequivocally that Christian truth is ultimately a matter of, is ultimately uh, not a matter of, of human reason, mere human reason or religious speculation. Rather, it is rooted in God's revelation of himself. The writer assumes here a key principle for patristic theologians, for the church fathers. Ultimately, only God can reveal God, and we can know nothing about God unless he reveals himself. This revelation of himself, the author of this treatise maintains, was made through the incarnation of his son. It is noteworthy that the author of the treatise does not go into God's revelation of himself prior to the incarnation of Christ. In my opinion, this is one of the the, the one main drawback of, of the letter is that he doesn't fully address this. Yet this is central to the New Testament witness to Christ. The God who spoke in the past and revealed himself through his servants, the prophets, is now speaking through his son. As we read in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Failure to take into account God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament era will cause problems for the author of this treatise when he comes to answer Dionysus concerning the antiquity of Christianity. I'll talk more about that later. But I, I think that the, the author did miss uh, an opportunity to, to fully address Dionysus' question about the antiquity of Christianity. 
Christianity then is ultimately not a human attempt to find God, whether by philosophical speculation or by religious ritual. Rather, it is founded on God's revelation of himself and that in a person, his son. The son does not belong to the order of creation, as the letter makes clear. The son's dominion over the entirety of nature and by implication his deity is trumpeted forth. The son by whom God made the heavens and the earth and all that they contain was sent to reveal God. As a king sending his royal son, the author declares, so he sent him, as God he, he sent him, as God he sent him, as man to men he sent him. These words reveal a high doctrine of Christ. Who is this one whom God sent to reveal himself? Well, he is a son. He is sent as God. When he called men to repentance and faith, it was God who was calling. His coming can be described as the coming of God. This discussion of the way in which God has revealed himself opens the way for the author to provide an answer to what would have been a basic question for most peoples in the Roman Empire, whether Jew, Greek, or Roman. The last of the questions mentioned in the first chapter of the treatise, why has this new race of men, or at least this novel manner of living, only come into our lives recently instead of much earlier? It was axiomatic among the ancients that what was true was old and what was new was questionable and probably false. This raised an obvious problem for those seeking to convince men and women of the truth claims of Christianity. For Christianity took its rise from the appearance of Christ. The standard answer among Christian apologists was that the Old Testament era predicted the coming of Christ. Seen in this light, Christian truth had a much better claim to antiquity than either Greek or Roman thought, neither of which was over a millennium, year, over a millennium old. So Christian apologists didn't need to begin with the incarnation. Now, don't get me wrong, the, the incarnation is important. It's extremely important as a revelation of God's plan of redemption, but it didn't begin with the incarnation. When we point to the Old Testament scriptures, the inspired words that were given to the prophets of old, we can show that God God's revelation of his plan of salvation goes back to David and then to Moses and then to Abraham and then to Noah and then clear back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So it, it really is an ancient truth. The letter to Dionysus, however, does not take this approach. Earlier in the sections dealing with Judaism, the author had taken such a hard stance against Judaism that the impression is given that Judaism was of no value at all, not even as a forerunner of Christianity. Thus, the author is forced to argue that although God conceived the design of sending his son to redeem humanity, at first he told it to nobody but the son. Then when men and women had shown by their unruly instincts and sensuality and lust that they were both unworthy to achieve life and unable to enter the kingdom of God by their own power, God sent forth his son. Even though this argument as it stands without any hint of the Old Testament period of preparation is probably the only major weakness of the letter, it does provide yet another support for embracing the Christian faith. The author has argued that God revealed his plan of salvation to none but his beloved son until men realize their utter and incomplete inability to gain heaven 
by their own stroke. Then when men were conscious of their own of their sin and the impending and the impending judgment, God did the following. Instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickednesses against us, he showed us how long suffering he is. He bore with us, and in pity he took our sins upon himself, and gave his own son as a ransom for us the holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? And whom could we in our lawlessness and ungodliness have been made holy, but in the Son of God alone? O oh, sweet exchange, O oh, unsearchable working, O oh, benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should, should thus be hidden in the one righteous, and the righteousness of one should justify the countless wicked. The use of the term ransom at the head of this passage recalls Mark 10.45, where ransom bears all the force of its meaning as a payment that is substitutionary in character. Here in the letter to Dionysus, the substitutionary motif is also in view in the letter's use of the term ransom, as the subsequent clauses of this text clearly display. Five dialectical, dialectical ways are employed to express this act of substitution, one of which, the righteous one for the unrighteous, almost exactly reproduces a phrase from 1 Peter 3.18. What is highlighted in this dialectic are the twin soteriological themes of the son's utter sinlessness and humanity's radical depravity. The dialectic that recalls the rich Pauline theology of salvation is found in passages like Romans 5, 6 through 10. Finally, the author of this letter presents two evidences for the truth of Christianity. The first is the Christian community. Dionysus, like many other pagans, had been amazed at the love Christians showed for one another. Pagan life was characterized by passions quite different. Living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another is the way that Paul depicts the social fabric of the empire in the first century. No wonder then that Christian communities stood out like brilliant lights in a dark firmament. Christians love one another because God first loved them and showed that love through the sacrificial gift of his own beloved son. Embracing the son's death for one's sins by faith alone leads to a desire to imitate God, the great lover of mankind. And it is in the mutual love of believers for one another and their neighbors that evidence will be seen that God lives in heaven. Christian love is thus one key evidence for the truth of the Christian worldview. Our author discerns a second evidence for the truth of Christianity in the way that believers are prepared to swim against the stream of their contemporaries' ethical values and even to die for their beliefs. Earlier in the treatise, the author stresses that Christians are not distinguished from their culture by virtue of their geographical location, language, or customs of dress, food, and other matters of daily life. 
in some ways, they look just like their pagan neighbors. In other words, Christians did not seek to escape from the involvement, from involvement in their society. Yet their worldview did draw certain lines of demarcation between themselves and their surrounding culture. The fact that they were destined for a world of holy love meant that their lives in this world were ordered differently from that of their pagan neighbors. In essence, they lived in the world in various communities scattered around the Mediterranean basin, but they did not live their lives in accord with this world's standards. In particular, this paradoxical relationship to their society is well seen in their attitude toward child exposure and sexual expression. In common with the rest of the Greco-Roman society, Christians married and bore children. Unlike their culture, however, they utterly refused to engage in the practice of child exposure. They marry and beget children, though they do not expose their infants. This practice of placing unwanted babies out in the streets or on the edge of town near the garbage dumps was all too common throughout the Greco-Roman world. The wealthy did not want to share their worldly wealth among too many heirs. The poor had too many mouths to feed. A frank statement of this practice has been found recently in a letter written around the year 1 BC by a man who was away on a business trip. He instructed his pregnant wife in Alexandria who was about to give birth. When you give birth, if it is a male, leave it. If a female, cast it out. Whereas the pagan Greco-Roman world was extremely callous with regard to the value of human life, early Christian communities sought to demonstrate the compassion of the Lord Jesus for the weak and defenseless. A second area where the Christian communities differed radically from their culture was in the area of sexual ethics. Any Christian is free to share his neighbor's table, but never his marriage bed. Sexual immorality was rampant within the empire, but Christians were firm in their stand against it. As his author, another Christian apologist emphasized, charges of sexual immorality against Christians were groundless. Because Christians sometimes referred to uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, as a love feast, the enemies of Christianity distorted that and they claimed that Christians uh, engaged in orgies. Of course, that was far from the truth. And this author and other Christian apologists made that clear. Now, let's turn to Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, his name originally was not Justin Martyr. He, that's how he is known today, because Justin became a martyr. So that's why he's known as Justin Martyr. That wasn't originally his name. His name was just Justin. Justin Martyr was a church father who performed the hard work of breaking a trail for future generations of Christians. He was among the first to engage the broader Greco-Roman culture with the Christian message. His predecessors, such as Ignatius of Antioch, who we looked at last time, had proclaimed the essence of the gospel with great boldness. But they did not seriously attempt to correlate the claims of Jesus or the scriptures 
with the philosophical principles of their times. Justin Martyr was a man who did this. And so he can be considered among the first Christian philosophers in church history. The writings he has left us are not warm pastoral letters like those of Ignatius, but the serious attempt of an intellectual to make a reasoned defense of the faith. Justin forged a path many Christian apologists would follow. Justin Martyr created an apologetic framework that many future evangelists could use. He sought to win a pagan audience by shaping the Christian message to conform to existing intellectual or cultural concepts. Justin found connections between the church's proclamation and the thought world into which he was taking the gospel. Yet he did so without compromising the essence of the faith, like the many heretical sects had done. I will discuss Justin's apologetic techniques and the basic presuppositions of his intended audience. But first, let's start with Justin's early life and his conversion from pagan philosophy to Christianity. Justin Martyr was born in Samaria in about the year AD 100. And he boldly took the gospel to faraway lands. His hometown was Flavia Neapolis, a pagan city near the ruins of Shechem where Jesus had met the Samaritan woman at the well. But Justin seems not to have belonged to the Samaritan religious or cultural heritage, where he had a Latin name, he was uncircumcised, and he received a Greek education. Probably his parents had only recently immigrated to the new city. Young Justin was a lover of philosophy. So around AD 30, he made his way to a major metropolis where he could study under different philosophical teachers. This city was likely Ephesus, for the church historian Eusebius locates Justin there. Could it be that Justin, as a Christian convert residing in Ephesus, was taught the heroic study, the story of Ignatius of Antioch, who had passed nearby 15 years earlier? We do not know this for sure, but the suggestion is not improbable. So he may know of Ignatius of Antioch and his martyrdom that we looked at last time. Before his conversion to Christianity, Justin experimented with several different schools of thought. His first teacher represented the Stoic philosophy. Justin devoted himself to this teacher for an extended time, but eventually he grew disillusioned with Stoicism. For the teacher appeared to have no personal knowledge of God and even said such knowledge was completely unnecessary. This contrasted with Justin's own view that it is truly the duty of philosophy to investigate the deity. We can see that Justin's quest was spiritual, not merely intellectual. He wanted to find absolute truth, and this meant investigating divine things. Justin left the Stoic teacher and 700 follower of Aristotle, who had prideful intellectual pretensions. And I've noticed that this is, this tends to be the, the way of, of the, the philosophical types, even in our day, of having these prideful intellectual pretensions. But Justin soon discerned that the would-be mentor's preoccupation when the teacher started figuring out how much money Justin would have to pay him. This seemed unworthy of a person truly devoted to wisdom. So Justin next tried to uh, 
a prominent Pythagorean teacher who also was puffed up with his own knowledge. When Justin approached him to become his disciple, the teacher scolded Justin for not being educated in music, astronomy, or geometry. Justin was deeply discouraged to learn that finding God meant spending so much time studying these preliminary matters. Finally, he decided to try a teacher who was highly respected by the Platonists. At last, Justin's philosophical education began to take flight. Platonism emphasized finding the highest spiritual ideals that transcend the physical world. Justin found himself mesmerized by this quest. He imagined he had become a wise man and was expecting to receive a vision of God very soon. It was in this expectant frame of mind that Justin went one day to a lonely spot by the sea to contemplate Plato's philosophy. Soon he realized he was being followed by a distinguished looking elderly gentleman. Justin turned and stared silently at his unexpected companion. Do you know me? The old man finally asked. Justin replied that he did not. So why are you staring at me? The man inquired. Justin answered that he was wondering what the fellow was up to in such a remote place. The old man responded, I am concerned about some of my household. They are gone away from me, and therefore I have come to make personal search for them, if perhaps they shall make their appearance somewhere. This cryptic answer reminds me of the parable of the lost things in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, making me wonder if the old man had intentionally set out to do evangelism that day. In any case, the pair struck up a conversation and soon were engaged in a deep philosophical discourse about how to find God. Justin advocated a platonic method whereby God was found through inner reasoning in the mind's eye. But the old man pointed Justin in a different direction to divine revelation. Will the mind of man see God at any time if it is uninstructed by the Holy Spirit, he asked. The old man showed Justin that the philosophers had contradictory opinions on spiritual matters, so they could not be trusted to guide the seeker to ultimate truth. If even the wisest teachers and philosophers do not know the truth, Justin asked, then where should I turn? At this point, the old man directed Justin to the scriptures. Long ago, he said, there were prophets inspired by the Holy Spirit. They wrote down messages directly from God. Whoever reads their writings in faith will find true knowledge of him. The old man urged Justin with these words, pray that above all things, the gates of light may be opened to you. For these things cannot be perceived or understood by all, but only by the men to whom God and his Christ have imparted wisdom. At this point, the old man went on his way and Justin never saw him again. But in his soul, the, the young truth seeker was deeply moved by what he heard. Justin described his, his conversion experience like this. Straightway a flame was kindled in my soul and the love of the prophets 
and of those men who are friends of Christ, possess me. Moreover, I wish that everyone making a resolution similar to my own would not keep themselves away from the words of the Savior. So in other words, <clears throat> Justin was moved not only to become a Christian, but to share that, to share that faith with others. In Justin, a new kind of philosopher had been born. One who, one who grounded his philosophy in the Lord Jesus Christ as, as the source of all truth. It was the beginning of an important trend in the ancient church. Justin had embraced what he thought was the most safe and profitable philosophy. But the lifestyle he chose was one of bold and sometimes dangerous confrontation. With his newfound desire to serve as a Christian philosopher, it was only a matter of time until he began to run into people with different views than his own. Justin was accustomed to travel the streets of Ephesus wearing the pallium, a square garment of drab and coarse material folded and draped around the body, often doubling as a blanket at night. The costume was noticeably different from the more prestigious semi-circular semi wrap for Roman men called the toga. The pallium, a Greek fashion that signaled a simple lifestyle, identified its wearer as a philosopher. Justin was the first Christian known to adopt this mode of dress. One day, Justin was strolling along the shady colonnade of a broad avenue, wearing his philosopher's robe when he was hailed by a stranger. Good morning, philosopher, the man said as he joined Justin at his side. What can I do for you, asked Justin. The man replied that his mentor had taught him always to greet anybody wearing the pallium, for you never know, you never knew what piece of wisdom you might gain from that philosopher. The man introduced himself as Trifo, a Jew who had recently fled Palestine to escape the revolutionary war against Rome. Justin and Trifo began to converse about spiritual matters. Soon they were delving into biblical argumentation and theological apologetics from opposite angles. Their discussion eventually grew into a two-day debate between friendly adversaries. At the conclusion of their conversation, both parties agreed it had been a mutually profitable experience. About 25 years later, Justin wrote down an account of the exchange known to us as the Dialogue with Trifo the Jew. And this, um, the, the fact that I'm talking about Justin Martyr and, and the dialogue with Trifo the Jew is just one more of many examples of how even when we as human beings don't coordinate our efforts, the Holy Spirit does. If you were uh, in Sunday school, you may remember that Bob talked, he referred to this, uh, this document the dialogue with, with Trifo and the Jew. So he talked about it and now I'm talking about it. Many scholars believe the work records the essence of a real debate between these two philosophers. In the dialogue, Justin offered numerous explanations of Old Testament prophecies and defended the divinity of Christ. For his part, Trifo provided Jewish rebuttals of Christian doctrines as he argued for the observance of the Mosaic law. 
the whole discourse was carried on, out with a civility that is quite rare in the history of Jewish-Christian relations. As the debate was winding down, Justin revealed his concern for soul winning when he urged Trivo to accept Christ as his savior. I exhort you to give all diligence in this very great struggle for your own salvation and to be earnest in setting a higher value on the Christ of the Almighty God than on your own teachers. Praying for Trifo and his friends, Justin said, I can wish no better thing for you, sirs, than this. To recognize that wisdom is given to every man in this way, so that you may be of the same opinion as me and believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. Soon after this expression of hope for his new friend's salvation, Justin set sail for a foreign destination, probably to Rome. Although we don't know exactly when he arrived in Rome, there is no question Justin eventually made his way to the capital city of the empire. It appears he lived in Rome twice in his life. There he served as a Christian teacher who instructed students in the in theological philosophy and also engaged in oral and written debates with pagans, heretics, and Jews. As Eusebius puts it, Justin was especially prominent in those days. In the guise of a, of a philosopher, he preached the divine word and contended for the faith in his writings. Christian meetings took place at Justin's private home, a rental property in an apartment building above a bathhouse. This is the only Christian meeting place Justin knew about in the city, though undoubtedly there were others. From this productive period in Justin's life, three writings have come down to us today. One is the report of his exchange with Trifo that I've already mentioned. Another is his first apology written around AD 155, which is one of the foremost examples of Christian apologetics in all of church history. The third surviving work of Justin's is what appears to be some discarded pieces of his major apologetic work, which is now come to be called the second apology, though it was probably never intended as a standalone work. Justin's boldness soon brought him into confrontation with a teacher named Crescens, who adhered to the philosophy of cynicism. Justin described him as a lover of bravado and boasting, who is not worthy of the name of philosopher because he publicly bears witness against us in matters which he does not understand. At one point, Justin put a series of questions to Crescens, humiliating him by showing he knew absolutely nothing about Christianity and had not read the teachings of Christ. But despite his ignorance, Crescens had the skill to stir up public opinion against the Christians. One of Justin's most brilliant students, a young Assyrian named Tatian, and Tatian, by the way, wrote the first harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron. So he, he was indeed a, a very brilliant student of Justin Martyr. But Tatian offered this observation. Crescens, who made his nest in the great city, surpassed all men in unnatural love and was strongly addicted to the love of money. Yet this man who professed to despise death was so afraid of death that he endeavored to afflict on Justin and indeed on me the punishment of death. Justin was well aware that Crescens was attempting 
to accuse him before the authorities. I expect to be prodded against and fixed to the stake due to Crescent's slander, he said. We did not know the precise role Crescent's played in Justin's arrest, but we do know that in about AD 165, Justin's apologetic ministry took a deadly turn. Justin had never been afraid to speak out against the tyrannical regime of Rome when he believed Christians' rights were being trampled. His so-called second apology was written because of an outrageous instance of anti-Christian discrimination. A formerly immoral woman had become a believer and now found her husband's extreme debauchery intolerable. She wanted to divorce him, but her Christian friends advised her to stay with him in case he too might be saved. Yet the man's wanton living was so excessive that she finally had had enough. She served him with divorce papers. The man was so irked by this that he made public accusations against his ex-wife's pastor, Ptolemy, who had supposedly filled her head with crazy doctrines. Ptolemy was thrown into prison, where it just so happened that the jailer was a friend of the accuser. They conspired to trump up charges against Ptolemy, not based on any specific crime, but solely for adhering to the name of Christ. Recall that Ignatius of Antioch was arrested on the same charge. On this rather tenuous legal basis, the city's prefect, who was Rome's judicial enforcer and essentially his mayor, ordered Ptolemy and one of his outspoken defenders to be put to death. When Justin publicized his second apology to criticize this decision, perhaps Crescens used it to bring Justin to the authorities' attention as a member of an illegal sect. It wasn't long before Justin was hauled before the prefect, along with at least six of his friends, to give an account of his doings. Fortunately, we have a record of the proceedings called the Acts of Justin and his Companions. The prefect, Rusticus, asked Justin to summarize his doctrine. Justin answered by describing his belief in one God, the maker of all things, and in his son, Jesus Christ, who was predicted by the prophets. Rus Rusticus then honed his questioning. Are you a Christian, he asked. Justin answered, yes. I'm a Christian. Next, Rusticus examined Justin's companions, including one woman. All of them confessed their faith in Christ. The prefect mockingly asked Justin whether he was supposed whether he supposed he might gain some eternal reward by dying. I do not suppose it, Justin answered emphatically, but I know it and I'm fully persuaded of it. Fed up with, it, with the dialogue, Rusticus issued his final verdict. He ordered the Christians condemned to execution for their refusal to make sacrifices to the pagan gods. And so it was that Justin earned the name by which he is known to history, Justin Martyr. In order to understand Justin Martyr's apologetics, we need to understand a bit about the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Plato lived long before the Christian period. He lived about 427 to 347 BC, but he had a profound impact on the ancient church nonetheless. 
He taught that there is a great gulf between our physical material world and the world of what he called forms or ideas. The forms are perfect abstract concepts, the opposite of the physical copies of those concepts that we see all around us. So the, the physical world is simply a, uh, a manifestation or representation of the ideal forms that exist somewhere else, often, often the heavens. The burning question of Platonic philosophers was, how do the forms and matter connect? The great goal of later Platonism was to find the mediating principle between down here and up there. Or to put it in theological terms, if the mysterious goodness behind our universe existed in faraway solitude, as Plato taught, how was he to be known by us humans? Justin Martyr, being the brilliant philosopher that he was, offered in his first apology a Christian answer to this age-old platonic dilemma. One obvious way to connect the divine and earthly realms would be to suggest a series of intermediate beings who could serve as go-betweens. This is essentially the answer given by ancient Viking religion. The many gods are situated in their ranks between mere mortals on earth and the heights of Mount Olympus. Greco-Roman religion consisted of magical rituals and prescribed customs to placate the gods and make them give you good fortune. Justin did not deny the existence of these gods. He knew that the spiritual entities being worshiped were all too real. Justice simply informed his pagan audience that they were actually worshiping the wicked demons of Satan. This assertion echoes Paul's claim in Romans in, in 1 Corinthians 10 20 that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Justin Martyr often mentioned the demons in his writings. He considered them to be steadfastly opposed to Christ's ministry of enlightenment toward mankind in both the Old and New Testament eras. The demons masqueraded as gods to be worshiped in order to keep humans in darkness and bondage. Justin even claimed their voices could be heard through, the, through evil teachers such as Simon Magus. For Justin, a hierarchy of intermediate spirits could not be the answer to the platonic dilemma. The demons were part of the problem, not the solution. Many educated philosophers in antiquity found popular religion and its superstitious myths about the gods to be crude and unenlightened. And Jessica Kramas brought that out in, in Sunday school that there was pagan religion, established pagan religion, and many philosophers thought that thought it was crude and unenlightened, but they didn't really have an answer either. They wanted a different solution to the platonic need for mediation between the divine and human realms. By Justin's day, a concept had emerged within Platonism that, that borrowed a term from Stoic thought. Justin found this concept to be tremendously useful, so he made it a centerpiece of his theology. The concept is described by the Greek word logos. Often this is translated in English as word, but logos could mean much more than that. It could refer to reason or rationality or the inner discourse that takes place in your mind as you think your thoughts. 
Over time, the word logos had come to describe the rational mind of God. And this makes me think of um, the verse in Genesis chapter one, which where, where um, God is described as saying, let us make man in our image. Sometimes this logos was portrayed as a distinct entity through which the cosmos was created and governed. It was differentiated from God himself and being separate, it could guide the physical universe on God's behalf. Thus for philosophical schools of that age, the logos designated the mediating principle between absolute divinity and finite materiality. But what exactly was the nature of the logos? Nobody really knew. So when Justin came on the scene as a Christian philosopher, he blazed an apologetic trail for the church by borrowing this common philosophical idea and equating it with the Lord Jesus Christ. In so doing, he used chapter one of John's gospel as a biblical precedent. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. But Justin went on to develop an entire theology identifying the philosophical Logos as the incarnate Son of God. Justin could now give an apologetic answer to the great platonic dilemma of mediation. Jesus Christ, he said, was the one and only path between the spiritual and earthly realms. I'll now conclude with a word of prayer and then we'll open it up for discussion and comments. Father, we are so thankful that you have called individuals into your body, into the body of Christ, into the church, who were specially prepared and trained for the missions that you would have them do. We thank you as the recipients of what you have done, what you have providentially worked out down through the history, down through the ages of your church. And we ask that you will help us to absorb these truths, to make them part of our lives so that we can share them with the world around us. Just as the author of the letter to Dionysus and Justin Warder did in their day. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>